catch a good game. Thank you. It's so beautiful here. For me, well, for me, it's like a dream come true. Can I ask you something? Is this heaven? It's Iowa. Iowa? dreams come true. Let me get myself together for a second. I've watched Field of Dreams 43 times, and every time I see that scene, I cry. <laughs> Is there a heaven? Is there a heaven? What a significant question that is to ask in our lives today. And over the course of the next few weeks, I hope that we're able to spend time together and not only answer the question, Is there a heaven? but also answer some questions about what will heaven be like? What will we do in heaven? What are our loved ones who are in heaven now? What are they doing? How are they living? And I hope that over the course of this series of sermons that we will have such a strong desire for heaven that it will instill in us and ignite in us the desire to tell everyone about the home where we're headed someday, which is heaven. So you pray for me over these next few weeks as we talk about heaven. Now, is there some bad theology there in the uh, clip? Yeah, there probably is, but it's one of my favorite movies, and I knew that that question was asked there, so I just thought I would throw it in there. It's one of those movies I can sit and I can watch that movie, and I can do everybody's dialogue. I can do the whole movie by heart. So, um, but living forever, have you ever thought about living forever? Not in the physical state that you're in now. I'm at the age now to where every morning I wake up and I realize that I have body parts that I didn't know I had. Um, they're aching and I have uh, joints and uh, ligaments and things that are sore and I didn't even realize that I had them before. I'm not talking about living forever in the present state that I'm in now but living forever the way that God designed for us to live in his initial creation. The Australian Aborigines pictured a distant, a heaven as a distant island behind, beyond the western horizon. 
The Peruvians believe that they went to the sun or moon at death. Native Americans believe that their spirit would one day hunt the spirit of buffalo on the Great Plains. All of these are images of peace and tranquility. They all give us a sense of peace and a longing to be in such a situation. Now Jesus wanted us to understand heaven in such a way that others don't understand it. Jesus used common physical terms. As we'll see in John 14 too, when we read it here in a few minutes, Jesus would describe heaven as a place like a house or a room. He gave us something tangible to look forward to. He gave us an actual place where we would go to be with him someday. You see, we are suited for, we are created for eternity. The physical way that God created us, we are suited and created for an eternity. And we are created to be in a place like the one God made for us, which is the earth on which we live now. Now this is the most important thing in all that I'm going to say is that God never gave up on his original plan of creation. God created a perfect environment, and he placed man in a perfect place, and he placed man there with responsibilities and work to do, and man was uh, tasked with the, with the uh, opportunity to keep it going and to keep it in God's original state, but we know that sin came in, as we remember uh, from vacation Bible school, sin messed everything up. But God never gave up on his original plan. And the climax of all history will be the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, a resurrected universe inhabited by resurrected people living with the resurrected Jesus. Jesus tells us about it in Revelation chapter 21. John the Revelator gives us this description. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He, talking about God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Do you realize this morning, no matter how hard you are longing to be in heaven, God is longing to be reunited or united with you even more than you long to be with him? And he is working and preparing. Jesus said he is going to prepare a place for us that we may be with him. We are bound to mortality. We all have a lot of differences. In, uh, there's a, a lot of differences in all of us. Sean, come here just a second. You messed up and sat on the outside. You should have swapped with Leighton. Now you look at me and Sean here. I owe you big time, Don, buddy. Sean is young. I'm old. Sean is big and strong and fast. I'm old and slow and feeble. 
Sean will walk across a stage at a major university someday and hear the words magna cum laude. I walked across the stage one day and I, I thought, thank you, dear Lordy. But in all of those differences that we have, we have one thing in common that all of us, there's probably 300 people in this facility right now, we all have this in common. We all have an appointed time. We all have mortality because of the sin that came into this world. Every one of us have mortality, and we're all going to pass away from this life in some manner. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. Give Sean a hand. <laughs> now, here's what I want you to understand. Three people die every second. 180 people die every minute. 11,000 people die every hour. 250,000 people die every day, and they either go to heaven or hell. Let that sink in for a moment. 250,000 people die every day, and they either go to heaven or hell. We have choices in this life here. King David said this. He said, each man's life is but a breath. Take a breath in. Let it out. In the, in the grand scheme of eternity, that's how long your life is here on this earth. It's that brief. You're here for that brief of a moment. So as we live in this brevity of time, we should spend a lot of time thinking about what waits on us on the other side in eternity. So we ask this question, how can I know? Let's read verses 1 through 3 together. Here in John chapter 14, Jesus says this to his disciples. As he's describing to them that he will soon leave them, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have, not, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Or can I know for sure that heaven is a real place? I know from my own personal experience, I have been, some of you who are in the medical profession, or maybe you're a minister, or maybe you've had the same experience that I've had. I have been with people from our church who are leaving this earth. They were, they were hours away from passing away from this life. And I said, and I can never, I'll never forget on Highway 21 right down here, sitting in Maxine Simmons' uh, room and her holding my hand as she is just a few hours away from leaving this life. And her words to me over and over were, Michael, I wish you knew what I know now. And I would watch her with her eyes fixed, looking straight ahead, say, Jesus, what are you waiting on? I'm ready. I'm ready to go, Jesus. Why are you waiting? Let's go, Lord. I heard her say that over and over and over. I've made friends with a man here in the past uh, uh, a few weeks or, or the past over the past year I've made friends with him. And um, I, he told me, he said, I'm going to drop in one Sunday to your church and I want to hear your sermons. We were talking about my sermons on heaven. He said, my mother was a great person of faith. And he said, I never really understood, I never really got it until I was with her there 
as she, after she had battled cancer for years and struggled with the pain but never gave up her faith. And he said the few seconds that she was taking her last breath, he said there was a sense of peace that came over her and a smile that came over her face that I hadn't seen since she, before she had the cancer. And he said, I knew at that moment, mother's right. Mother's right. Mother's soul, he said, I know that at that moment, her soul went to be with the Lord and she was at peace. Heaven is a real place. We have a lot of people who have a fear of heaven and eternal life because we have so many misconceptions about what is going to be. I have, I have people I know who think that heaven would be a boring place to be. They don't want, uh, I've had people tell me, I don't, I'm, I'm worried about going to heaven because I don't know if I'll know my loved ones there. We'll talk about that in a sermon in a few weeks. But we have an unbiblical view of heaven that it's going to be an unending church service. Uh, that we're just going to be in an eternal sing-along. Where Jesus will be there with a hymnal and he'll say, pick a hymn. That's not what heaven's going to be like. We are designed to worship, but we are not designed to be in an unending. Some of you think, well, you preach like we're going to be in an unending church service sometime. But that's not what heaven's going to be like. We're going to have work. We're going to have a purpose. We're going to have things. Yes, we will spend great times in heaven in, in worship. And we will spend times around Jesus worshiping him. But we are not designed exclusively for worship. And because we think of heaven that way, Sometimes we call, it causes us to look at this present world to find what life that we can here and try to make this heaven on earth. And we'll never do that. We're going to find out that we're going to have work and purpose in heaven and that we're going to fulfill that. I can tell you from my seminary experience that there is a theological neglect of heaven. We don't talk about heaven that much in my seminary experience. John Calvin, who wrote, extensive, numerous books and great volumes of books, never wrote a commentary on Revelation, and he rarely ever wrote about eternity. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is someone that I study today who's still alive, he wrote a 900-page book titled Great Doctrines of the Bible, and he only devoted two pages to eternity. There's a theology professor named A.J. Conyers that... Um, the author of the book I'm reading cites, and he says that until recently, the doctrine of heaven was enormously important to the church. Belief in heaven was not just a nice side thought. It was a central life-sustaining conviction. It used to invigorate our thoughts and, and excite our hearts. But this world has become so filled with things that distract us that we don't think about our eternity that much. And here's we get our information about heaven from TVs and movies and not biblical doctrine. Remember the old movie? We watch it every Christmas. It's a wonderful life. What's the name of the angel? Clarence. He's trying to get his angel's wings. It makes us feel good. It's a real feel-good movie. But it's horrible doctrine and theology. When I was young, there was a, a television show that was popular, Highway to Heaven. Y'all remember Highway to Heaven? Michael Landon. He left. Uh, the Ponderosa, then he moved to um, then he moved to Minnesota, he was Pa Ingalls, and then he was an angel. 
They don't make them like Michael Landon anymore. But I can remember watching that. Michael Landon, he he, and Victor French, he, they portrayed. He was he was a, a want, he was trying to become a full fledged angel, and he was here on earth and he was helping people along. It made you feel good, but it was real bad doctrine. Oh, I upset some people on a Wednesday night when I told them that the shack and um, what was that other movie? The shack and heaven is for real. They make you feel good. But they're filled with horrible doctrine and theology. But that's where we get our thoughts about heaven and about the afterlife. Now, where are all these misconceptions that we have today? Where do they come from? They come from Satan. Satan wants you to believe that there is not a heaven. And he wants you that if you do believe that there is a heaven, he wants you to believe that it is unexciting that it is boring and it is nothing to long for. Now, if I were a travel agent and I wanted to send you somewhere exciting and somewhere where I knew you were going to have an adventure and you were going to come back and tell other people and I could tell them about the trip, now I would send you somewhere tropical and somewhere really, really good where I knew you were just going to have this great experience and you were going to want to come back. I wouldn't tell you, well, I've got this trip here to the Cayman Islands or the Turks and Caicos, but, man, I believe you'd rather go to Peoria, Illinois and spend a week there. No. Listen, I'm not going to stand here this morning and try to sell you on something that's boring and unexciting. Heaven is going to be the most exciting adventure and amazing thing that we will ever our minds can't wrap around it but satan wants us to believe otherwise jesus had this to say about satan in john 8 44 he said when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies in revelation 13 6 john the revelator tells us this that satan slanders three things he slanders god's person he slanders God's people, and he slanders God's place, which is heaven. Now, the reason for Satan's vicious anger towards God's person, place, and people is found in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 15. If you want to write that down and go back later, this is um, uh, the saying says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, speaking of Satan. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, which is hell, to the far reaches of the pit. You see, Satan slanders God. Satan slanders his people, and Satan slanders, boy, that's hard to say, heaven, because he was cast out of heaven for his pride, and he knows that his eternal destination is hell. Now, how does Satan accomplish this work in this world that we live in? How does he accomplish this work of getting us to think like there is no afterlife and that eternity doesn't matter. Satan has two great lies that he has perpetrated in our society over the last couple of generations, 
And those two great lies are evolution and abortion. What's that got to do with heaven? And, and, but here, both have led a generation, both have led to a generation who see no value in human life. Because of what, how, we, how we have accepted these two things into our culture, we have raised a generation behind us who now see no value in human life because they believe that they evolved from slime and that a baby in a mother's womb is a glob of cells and not a creation of God. And so why would a gen generations who have been raised to think that way, why would they think that there is an afterlife and why would they think that it's important to dwell on it and to think about it? That's what's happened in our society. And that's why it is the ministry that is so important in our church right now is the Awana ministry, where we get our children early and we fill them with Scripture and we fill them with the ability of apologetics of being able to defend their faith and being able to, to know these lies and recognize these lies when they see them and to be able to know and defend God's Word and to be able to know that their eternal destination can be heaven someday. Now, heaven is a place that's physical and spiritual. And God made us to be physical and spiritual. We're not designed to live in a non-physical realm. When I get to heaven, I'm not going to be a spirit sitting on a cloud playing a harp. That's not what I was designed to do. God, I will have a physical body someday that will be resurrected and it will be glorified by God and it will be essential to setting me free from sin, the curse, and death. Now, is it wrong for us to picture and think about heaven? Is it, choir? Is it wrong for us to picture and think about heaven? No, it's not. Now, we, couldn't, we shouldn't become so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly value, but we should think about heaven. Have you ever daydreamed about a place that you've never been? A place where you see ad, advertisements or a place where someone you know has been? I'd, I'd, I would love to go to the Mediterranean. I would love to go to Greece and Spain and those places. I, I've always... I, <clears throat> I've always wanted to go and to travel there. Now, the more that I'm thinking and knowing about heaven, the more that I want to go to Jerusalem because someday there will be a new Jerusalem that will be there, will be the center of all activity, and it will be the place where I believe we will go to worship. How many of you have seen beautiful sights that you, you, you were just completely amazed by? You've never seen anything as beautiful, and it took your breath away. So we're going to be in eternal amazement in heaven. An endless amazement in heaven at God's perfect creation and what it should be. Now, is it good for us to picture ourselves with our loved ones who are in heaven? I think it's a wonderful thing for, for Micah and Seth to, to picture someday being reunited with their brother Jared in heaven. And I think it's wonderful for them to think and to know they didn't lose Jared. They know exactly where Jared is. He's in heaven. And to know that someday they're going to be reunited. 
my best preacher friend, Raleigh Morgan, is in heaven. We used to sit on Saturday nights and sit and write sermons together and go over and just pour over the Bible together. Raleigh is in heaven. He was taken uh, way too soon to me, but God had a plan. And I know I, in my mind I can't I picture me going to heaven someday and I hope that God will let Raleigh be the one who meets me there and who takes me to see Jesus first. Because we talked about it so much together. It's good for us to picture ourselves with our friends and loved ones. My grandparents are all there in heaven. And I, I, I want to see them, but more than anything else, I want to see Jesus. Now, there are things in the Bible that we could use to deter us from thinking about heaven. There's a scripture that says, no eye has seen. And since that's what some people will say, well, the scriptures say that no eye has seen, so why should we think about heaven so much if we can't even imagine it? It is, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. But go on and read verse 10. It says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. It's wonderful for me to sit and ask the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, well, let me understand a little bit better about what, life, what it's going to be like in heaven. And let me know and understand heaven a little bit better than what I do now. It's wonderful for us to be ever uh, to think our, and set our hearts and minds on heaven. Now, when we travel, we don't travel aimlessly. I, in, in, when we travel now, I have one phone that is on Waze and one phone that's on Google Maps. I want to be sure that I get where I'm going because I have a horrible sense of direction. And I'm not traveling aimlessly through this life. I'm traveling knowing that my final destination is in heaven. And when I'm traveling to somewhere I've never been, I want to know what to do there. I want to know what's the best place to go to. What's the best place to eat? Where's the best place to do this or that? Well, I want to know if I'm going to be in heaven for eternity. I want to know what heaven's going to be like. And I want to get a sense of it now while I'm here on this earth. Paul said in Colossians 3.1, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's the direct commandment from an apostle. Stop looking for all your fulfillment here because your home is in heaven. And that's where you'll be fulfilled. That, that phrase, seek the things that are above, comes from a Greek word, zeto. It means to diligently, actively, single-mindedly pursue those things which are above. It's an ongoing process that we should continue as long as we're here. We should never stop pursuing the things above where Jesus is. Now we're going to spend a lot of time talking about heaven. But there's an alternative there. Hell is heaven's awful alternative. Maybe you read Dante's Inferno in high school. I read it, I believe, in the 12th grade and then again in college. And I remember, um, it was reminded of me as I read this book, the, the words that are written there in Dante's Inferno. It says, abandon every hope, you who enter. You see, to 
take the separation there of the two, heaven is a place where we have great hope and great longing for, but hell is a place where there is no hope and there never will be. John tells us this in Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15. He says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's a horrible alternative to heaven. And it's just as real as heaven is, is the reality of hell. Matthew 25, 41 says this, Jesus' words, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. See, hell was not prepared for you. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. If you go to hell, you go as an intruder. The Bible, uh, Jesus had great th- a great deal to say about hell. Write this ver- these verses down, Luke 16, 19 through 31. Go back and read these, these after- this afternoon. It's a description of a man who went to heaven, and it's juxtaposed with a description of a man who went to hell. And the man who goes to hell, these are Jesus' words. Jesus says that he begs for the man who went to heaven to come and to dip his finger in cold water and put it on his tongue to quench his thirst. And he's told that between him and heaven is a great gulf, that those who are in heaven could never get to those who are in hell, and those who are in hell could never get to those who are in heaven. And that great gulf is filled with hopelessness. And God loved us enough to warn us that there are two eternal destinations, not just one, And we have to choose the right path. You see, we live in a day and a time, I call it Facebook religion. Everybody who dies, suddenly they're in heaven. And that's not the reality of it. That's not the reality of it. The reality is is there's two eternal destinations. And Jesus says this in the verses we'll read in just a few minutes. John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I'm the only way. We're in an in-between world right now. As much as Satan wants you to believe that there is no heaven, and if you have a belief in heaven, that heaven is a place that's going to be dull and boring, if you read these verses in Luke 16, 19 through 31, you understand that hell is agonizingly dull. Hell is small and insignificant. You won't have company in hell. As you read these verses here, you will realize that you are alone in isolation. Though there are billions there who are with you, you have no purpose. You will have no sense of accomplishment. You will be there in eternity with every regret that you ever had 
as your constant companion. And I can tell you, I don't, I, I'm not going to hell, but I can tell you that I believe that the flame of hell is nothing to compare with the hopelessness of hell and knowing that you will never have another opportunity to have access to God again. You're cut off with all, without hope. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says this, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. You will be in a place from the absence of God and everything that is good that God ever created. If we go back to the scene of the crucifixion and we realize that the wrath of God was completely poured out on Jesus there for those several hours as he was on the cross, and we see the agonizing wrath that Jesus suffered there on our behalf, that wrath will be poured out on us for eternity with no hope because we have rejected Jesus who took our place. So how can I know, and it's just as important, how can I go? Can you know you are going to heaven? John chapter 14, these last three verses, John uh, uh, verses 4 through 6, Jesus says, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way. There's no guesswork to it. There's no exception that we will all have to have our names written in the book of life to be entered in. There's a story here. Let me read this to you. Ruth, Ruth Anna Metzger, a professional singer, tells a story that illustrates the importance of having our names written in a book. Several years ago, she was asked to sing at the wedding of a very wealthy man. According to the invitation, the reception would be held on the top two floors of Seattle's Columbia Tower, the northwest tallest skyscraper. She and her husband, Roy, were excited about attending. At the reception, waiters in tuxedos offered luscious hors d'oeuvres and exotic beverages. The bride and groom approached a beautiful glass and brass staircase that led to the top floor. Someone ceremoniously cut a satin ribbon draped across the bottom of the stairs. They announced the wedding feast was about to begin. Bride and groom ascended the stairs, followed by their guests. At the top of the stairs, a maitre d', maitre d' with a bound book greeted the guest outside the doors. May I have your name, please? I am Ruth Anna Metzger, and this is my husband, Roy. He searched the M's. I'm not finding it. Would you spell it, please? Ruth Anna spelled her name slowly. After searching the book, the maitre d' looked up and said, I'm sorry, but your name isn't here. There must be some mistake, Ruth Anna replied. I'm the singer. I sang for this wedding. The gentleman answered, it doesn't matter who you are or what you did. Without your name in the book, you cannot attend the banquet. He motioned to a waiter and said, show these people to the service elevator, please. The Metzgers followed the waiter 
past beautifully decorated tables laden with shrimp, whole smoked salmon, and magnificent carved ice sculptures. Adjacent to the banquet area, an orchestra was preparing to perform, the musicians all dressed in dazzling white tuxedos. The waiter led Ruth, Anna, and Roy to the service elevator, ushered them in, and pushed the G for parking garage. After locating their car and driving several miles in silence, Roy reached over and put his hand on Ruth Anna's arm. Sweetheart, what happened? When the invitation arrived, I was busy, Ruth Anna replied. I never bothered to RSVP. Besides, I was the singer. Surely I could go to the reception without returning the RSVP. Ruth Anna started to weep, not only because she had missed the most lavish banquet she'd ever been invited to, but also because she suddenly had a small taste of what it will be like someday for people as they stand before Christ and find their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. There's a banquet being prepared. There's a feast being prepared. Jesus is the guest of honor. Jesus Christ is the guest of honor. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. My name is written in a book, a book of life, because I chose not to reject what Jesus did for me on the cross, but I chose to say I cannot get to God any other way except through what Jesus did for me on the cross. And there's a banquet being prepared. And it will outshine anything that has ever happened on this earth. And I will be ushered into that banquet. I will find my seat there. And I will be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it will begin my eternity in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have no idea what will be served at that meal. I have no idea what all will transpire there at that meal, but I know for certain without fact and without fail that I will be there and I will be with Jesus for eternity because I have been saved as we sang about during the, uh, during the offertory. I have been saved from my sins and sealed by the Spirit and I am as much in heaven already as if I had passed from this life. But there will be those there that day, just as Ruth Anna said, but I sang at the wedding, I, surely my name is there. There will be people there before the judgment of Christ, before the great white throne judgment, who will say, but I prophesied in your name. But I went to Sunday school. I was baptized. I, I, I went through this religious service. Or I did this. I helped people. And Jesus will say to them, as is, as is quoted here, Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Because they skipped this very important the important step is that there had to be repentance of their sins and forgiveness of those sins through the blood of Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the cross. 
Because if it were through my works and what I had done, then I could brag about it and say, this is how I got to heaven. But because Jesus paid all of it, when he was there on the cross, he said these words, it is finished, it is paid in full. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we talked about last week, for our sake, he, meaning God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took my place and took my sins on the cross so that someday God could look at me and not see the sin in my life and not see the ugliness about me, but see Jesus. The sin was so great that Jesus bore that there on the cross he cried out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did this so that you and I could know eternal life and know that we have a home in heaven. And we cannot assume, we can't leave it up to chance, we can't leave it up to guesswork. We have to know in our hearts that we have forgiveness of our sins and a home in heaven. C.S. Lewis said this, All your life in an unattainable ecstasy has been hovering just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it or else that it was within your reach and you have lost it forever. This morning, it is within your reach. Eternal life is within your reach through the forgiveness of your sins in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 55, 6 said this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he may be found. So let me succinctly say this there is a heaven and I am going there someday it may be this afternoon I intend to be here until I'm 102 but it may be this afternoon it may be tomorrow not one of us knows what the next 30 minute holds for us but I know that at the end of this life, I am going to be with Christ in heaven. Jesus Christ came to this earth. He left heaven. He came to this earth, born of a virgin. Lived a completely sinless life. Tempted in every way so that he could go to a cross and be your perfect substitute for your sins. They took him from that cross. They laid him in a tomb. They sealed that tomb. And they thought they were finished with him. But three days later, God the Father raised God the Son. History tells us that 500 people saw the physical resurrected Jesus Christ. 
History tells us that. He left this earth, but he didn't leave us alone. He said, I'm going to send a comforter, a helper to you. And that's God the Holy Spirit. And right now, in this sanctuary, God the Holy Spirit is right now pointing some of you to God the Son, Jesus Christ, and saying, this is your only hope. This is the only hope you have for your sin. This is the only hope you have for your eternity. This is the only hope you have for all that's wrong that you feel is wrong in your life. This is the only hope you have for the despair and the despondency and the depression and the anger and the hopelessness that you feel. It's Jesus. I came to a point one evening where I could not bear to go one more minute without Jesus in my life. Has my life been perfect since that moment? No. Actually, a lot of people would think my life was better before I knew Christ. But I can tell you this, every problem, every situation, every, everything that has ever happened to me since that moment, I have not gone through it by myself. I have gone through it with Jesus Christ and with people who are praying and as I stood right here this morning, listening to the choir sing, I asked Jesus to pray for me himself. I am not selling you some pie in the sky in the sweet by and by. I'm selling you the reality of heaven this morning and that Jesus Christ can save you from your sins and you can know for certain that you have a home in heaven. And that you will never experience the agonizing regret and unending destruction of hell. This morning, as the Holy Spirit is dealing with people, I want every one of you who know for certain that heaven is your home, I want you to be praying for those people. And I want you to pray that God would do a miraculous work of repentance and forgiveness in their life this morning. And that they could know that heaven is their home. And as we go through these next four weeks, as we find out more about heaven and what we're going to be and what heaven is going to be like, that they can understand that that's their new home. Let's stand as we pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't leave it up to guesswork. But thank you that we can know for certain this morning that heaven is our eternal home. I pray this morning, dear God, as the Holy Spirit of God is working in people's hearts and he's pointing them to the throne of Jesus and the forgiveness of their sins, I pray that they would let go of every, so, uh, every bit of pride every bit of rebellion, every bit of everything that is wrong in their lives, and they would come here this morning and say, I want to know for certain that I am forgiven and that heaven is my home. I'll be here, Seth and Donna will be here. There are others who would be more than glad to share with them about their eternal home of heaven. Father, 
for those who need to make decisions for baptism or membership. This time of decision and reflection and worship is a time for them also to strengthen them and to give them a place of service where they can give their giftedness to you and tell others about heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.